Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby. And today we're going to be talking about international expansion. And my guest is Sean Nair. Sean, welcome to the Grow CFO show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Kevin. How are you? I'm very well. And you're looking in fine fettle, as we'd say here in the northeast of England. Sean, tell me a little bit about yourself and what makes you an expert in international expansion. I'm not quite sure that I would call myself an expert because an expert to me is a has-been drip under pressure. But I have helped U.S. companies, primarily U.S., but also Canadian and some British companies expand internationally. My career doing this has spanned 20 years, and I have helped these companies expand into all of the regions of the world, North America, Latin America, Europe, Middle East, South Asia, and the Asia Pacific. So we're in 2023 with an economic climate that has changed. Fundraising isn't quite as easy as it used to be. It costs a lot of money to start thinking about an international expansion. Why is now a good time to expand? There are a variety of reasons, but you're absolutely right that money is harder, is more expensive and harder to come by. Also, on top of that, you've got disruption to supply chains that have happened, which are slowly now getting back into normal kilter. And you have the effect of the Russia sanctions and the tensions with the People's Republic of China. So companies may be not necessarily looking to expand, but looking to restructure. So typically, for example, a manufacturing company, which has got too much of its eggs in a Chinese basket, might want to restructure its operations and move some of that manufacturing elsewhere to have some redundancy in case there is a major disruption, such as if China invades Taiwan. Equally, a tech company that's got technical resources, R&D people in Russia would be looking to pull away from Russia and encourage those people to move to other countries and set up. So essentially, one reason for international expansion is not expansion per se, but restructuring and rearrangement. That being said, though, this is a good time to expand when times are hard because technical resources are relatively difficult and expensive to get in the major developed economies, in the OECD economies and in the US. And they're available in Eastern Europe, where costs are less. They're available in India, where costs are rising, but still significantly less. And so you may be looking to expand internationally, actually to save costs, not to spend money. I must admit, I hadn't thought about the international expansion at the moment as something to save cost, but I can now see that loud and clear. Now, with a lot of companies maybe thinking about moving into those cheaper territories, is there therefore any risk of a shortage of skill in some of those places? Do you think the skill base is still there and available for anybody who might be expanding? Well, it depends on exactly what you're moving. So if you're moving manufacturing, let's say you have a large manufacturing operation in China like Apple have, 
and they want to ship some of it to India. You're talking about blue-collar workers. You're not talking about highly skilled software engineers. And in a country like India, countries like India, Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, there is no real shortage of that type of labor at all and unlikely to be for quite a while. The main issue driving the choice of country will be the government incentives and the ease of doing business in those countries and the extent to which there are protectionist policies in place in those countries. So that's at the macro level. At a micro level, if you're a small to an SME, a small to medium-sized software company, for example, there is a shortage of resources now developing in India, which previously was not the case because the Indian economy is booming and is set to overtake the UK and Germany over the next three years. And there's very little doubt from every tidbit I get from India that the economy there is booming, jobs are 10 a penny, and there is a shortage. It's not quite as bad as Silicon Valley, but it's pretty bad, which is why companies are looking at other countries, particularly Eastern Europe, Poland, Czech Republic, Slovenia, relatively politically stable Eastern European countries. And they're also looking at Latin American countries. So for example, you can get software engineers in Colombia who, if you want an English-speaking software engineer, typical going rate at the moment is about $20 an hour compared to about three times that in India. So these countries are set to be have pools of qualified labor that could potentially be tapped. So an economic recession or an economic downturn, which is, I would say, we're in a downturn, but not quite in a recession, it never lasts for long, just as a boom never lasts for long. So I would expect these difficult market conditions to continue now for about 18 months to two years. And during that time, there's going to be no shortage of technical resources, so long as companies are prepared to look widely and go where the people are, rather than expect people to come where they are. Mm. You're mentioning a lot of territories in there that I probably traditionally not thought about too much of an expansion into, certainly the Latin America one is that I hadn't personally considered. Now, we've got a quite a global audience of this podcast. We're going to have some companies that are located in the United States looking to expand yes. elsewhere. We're going to have others that are in Europe possibly looking to expand. Do you think there are lots of different factors in play according to where you're based already? Yes. Just to give you an idea, I'm the president and owner of a company called Nucleus, www.nucleus-co.com. And this is what we do. We help U.S. companies and primarily U.S., but also Canadian and a few British and European companies expand into international markets. What we are seeing in the last three years, a little bit started a little bit before the interest rates went up, is U.S. companies going big time into Canada and Mexico because they're next door, Mexico for the cheap labor, Canada for the skilled expertise, next door, same time zone or similar time zone, very easy to control, manage and operate. So we're seeing a big boom. In fact, just yesterday, I was talking to a company that's wanting to set up in Mexico. Mexico has become very popular. Canada also. Yeah, I can definitely see the Canada side for the tech resource and possibly the sales market because you've got the same language. Yes. What are you seeing if you're looking at some European countries, companies, where are you typically seeing those companies wanting to expand? The United States is obviously a major market for them. 
Yeah, for most of them. So obviously they'd be expanding into the United States, but not for reducing costs, but for selling. Yeah. If you're looking at reducing costs, the major, major areas of the world they're expanding into at the moment is Asia Pacific. I've not heard of many European companies looking to expand into Latin America, which I find a little surprising because Latin America is the last untapped specialist skills market that there is. Yeah. And there's a big, big pool of labor resources. Yes. People are wanting to buy a product as well. Yes. I must admit that I don't quite understand either. And funny enough, in gross CFO terms, we are thinking about that whole Spanish-speaking world because we have Spanish-speaking mentors. And we're thinking, well, hang on, it's not just Spain that speaks Spanish. No. It's probably the second biggest language in the world. Why are yes. we looking at people that might want our services in Spanish elsewhere in the globe? Well, it's also Portuguese because one of the major economies in Latin America is Brazil. And Brazil is also one of the major markets for tech companies to sell into and to hire technical resource. Brazil puts people off because the amount of compliance, regulatory compliance that you have in Brazil is ginormous. And it also doesn't adhere to the OECD conventions on transfer pricing rules. So tax situations, you know, tax issues in Brazil are more complicated to handle than they are in most other countries because you can't go by OECD guidelines when it comes to dealing with the Brazilian tax authorities. Yeah. But Brazil, the major markets where we currently have clients in Latin America, are Mexico growing very rapidly. Brazil always has been a fairly established market. Argentina is a second one where clients are now going for technical resources. The main issue daunting them is the very high rate of inflation and the regulatory burden, which is significant in Argentina. Um, Countries where, strangely enough, I've not heard any or come across myself, anyone expanding into a countries like Uruguay, Chile a little bit, but not Uruguay, Paraguay, those countries. It's mainly been Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, and a little bit of Colombia. Funnily enough, the podcast that as we record this, and this, I issued in the week that we record this podcast, an interview with Francesco Zappala, who works for a large Italian construction company. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I was talking to Francesco about was setting up, he is CFO Chile for that particular large Italian conglomerate. And he was part of a team of six people that went into Chile to set the operation up. And it's now well over 500 people and a very major player in building infrastructure for the Chilean economy. So that was an interesting one. If you're listening to this and thinking about expansion into that sort of country, there's some really interesting things if you look back into that podcast with Francesco. But can I pick up on something you just mentioned? You're talking Brazil in particular, the regulatory regime. Now, Any country that you expand into is going to have different rules and regulations to the one you currently operate in. Yes. Possibly a minefield. Yes. How do you go about coping with that? And I'm thinking, right, great. I've got a lovely fintech company. Fintech is the thing, but I know that my fintech product will only work if it's a global product. How do I get into all of these other markets successfully without 
making serious mistakes? I think you need expert help, and that's exactly the type of help that we provide. So let's talk about fintech, because fintech is it's very close in my memory banks, because I'm just helping a fintech company do precisely ah, that. Brilliant. Basically, the fintech companies have to show their product has got global appeal. That means that they have to get licenses to operate in multiple countries. In most countries, not all, but most, in order to operate a fintech business, you need a license, a special license that's over and above the ordinary business licenses. And in order to get that license, you have to set up a subsidiary, whether or not you're going to employ people there. So that is actually an area where we come in because for this particular client, we're setting up subsidiaries for them in 23 countries. They're not having to deal with 23 law firms or 23 offices of a global law firm and 23 accountants or offices of a global accountant. They deal with one person at our end who has a number of people beavering away in different countries in the background that get all of this done for them very efficiently using pre-prepared documents like company articles and things like that. So really, it's a nightmare. And the only reason that Nucleus is in existence is that we solve this nightmare for them. And of course, there are other companies in our space that compete with us, but they need to basically get expert advice. They shouldn't just go in thinking that they know all the answers or even worse, thinking that getting half-baked answers and not having a complete picture because the compliance requirements are, there are legal compliance requirements, there are accounting compliance requirements, there are VAT or other indirect tax-related compliance requirements, corporate tax compliance requirements, and also in certain countries, there are HR compliance requirements. So they're different disciplines, and it's very important that you get advice across all of these disciplines and not talk to a law firm who then says, well, we didn't advise you about accounts because they're not accountants. Yeah, quite. I can see that's fine. If you're in a situation where you've got to set up a subsidiary, a legal entity, then mm -hmm. straight away you have all the rules and regulations about that corporate body. I can see straight yes. away then that takes you into tax implications because the corporate body is taxable in that country. More interesting one there is the HR things. What sort of thing do I need to be worrying about in the HR area? A good example is India. India has got POSH laws, P-O-S-H, Prevention of Sexual Harassment. Right. So if you have employees in India, there is a POSH filing that has to be made every year to a local office that deals with abuse of women and children. And it's a mandatory filing. And the company, if it's got more than 20 or more employees, has got a requirement to have an internal anti-sexual harassment committee with a company representative on it. So an accountant would say, this has nothing to do with accounts. We can't advise you. The lawyer would say, well, you asked us about setting up the company and you asked us about tax. You didn't ask us anything about HR. It falls through a crack. Also, sometimes actually on a different, slightly different vein, when you set up these companies, fintech, you have to be particularly careful because in certain countries, you have to set up a company with substantial share capital. So in other words, using UK as an example, if you're setting up in Colombia, UK limited equivalent in Colombia cannot conduct fintech business. The fintech business has to be conducted by a company similar to a UK PLC which has got substantially more share capital. 
that in turn has got tax implications. For example, if the company is a US company, one of the ways you can make international transfer pricing problems easy is by doing what they call a check-the-box election, where IRS treat the foreign company as a pass-through entity. Now, IRS have a list of companies where you can avail of a CTB election, a check-the-box election, and a PLC equivalent in Colombia doesn't fit it. You can't do it. So at that point, you have a transfer pricing issue as well. So this is what I'm just giving you a slight bit of insight because things are not as simple as they seem. And you do need an expert hand to guide you through these things. There's a maze and you want to get out of this maze at a particular geographical point and you're entering at a particular point, which is Greenfield. And you need somebody to guide you through this maze and get you through the right pathway to get to where you want to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. I can see all of that, Shan. But there seem to be a lot of potential pitfalls here. So I'm a CFO. I want to expand somewhere. What are the five things I'm most likely to get wrong? Yeah, I don't know about five, but the first thing you'd get wrong is if you try and do it on a shoestring. If you don't have an adequate budget, for God's sake, don't do it. Because the odds are that you do it on a shoestring, you think you got it right, and you'll get bitten in the butt three to four years later by one of the regulators. And you'll end up spending the same amount of money, but this time in penalties and taxes and with the regulators now, you're on their radar than if you'd done it properly in the first place. So that's the first thing. You know, if you don't have the money to do it, don't do it. Secondly, isn't just the the cost of doing it. You've ruined your reputation. Uh, You might. You might not necessarily ruin your reputation. If you're SME setting up hiring, uh, have an operation with five or 10 people or maybe even 20 people and you did things the wrong way and you got penalized, you're probably all right. Yeah. But But if you spend a load of money on it and then from then on, you'll have the tax authorities scrutinizing all your returns every year for the next five years. You really want all that handle. Yeah. That's the first thing. (laughs) Second thing is when you go in, go in with your eyes open, make sure you've done your background research that you know what the compliance requirements are. So for example, make sure you have a compliance calendar that for your particular year end lists all the filings in that particular country and the dates when they're due and filings across all the disciplines, not just legal filings or accounts or tax filings, but all the filings that a company that of the type that you're trying to set up has to make. Yeah. Thirdly, so that sure Indian example of the HR report that's going to be filed every year on sexual harassment. Yeah. If you just yes. go in the legal and the accounting ones, you're going to miss that. You're going to miss, oh, you'll be amazed how many Indian companies miss that when we do India health checks. Yeah. And you have to have it, even if all your employees are men, there are no women in your company. You still have to have it there because the argument is that you may have a female visitor coming in who might get sexually harassed and you have to have a policy to deal with it. Yeah. But I'd say what a boring, not diverse company if all your employees are men. True. (laughs) I agree. But often they are. Yeah. The third point is to check the HR rules and make sure that you understand your employment liabilities. You know, we were just talking about India. So talking about India, when a female employee gets pregnant, that employee is entitled to full pay for a substantial period of time, much longer than, say, the rules in the UK apply. So although terminating a non-performing employee in India is pretty easy when it's a white-collar employee, it's not easy when it's a blue-collar employee. So make sure that you understand the HR regulations 
and the kind of liabilities you're taking on and understand in particular if you're a US company that the concept of employment at will stops at the borders of the US. It doesn't apply anywhere in the world. The closest country it might apply to is white collar workers in India. But other than that, employment at will, just forget it. It doesn't apply. So make sure you understand your risks and the liabilities you're potentially taking on. I would say that I've given you three. I don't think there are another two. Those are the main ones. Right. Okay. That sounds enough to be worrying about, to be quite honest. So I think we've given people a huge amount to think about here. We've talked about, now to start off with, not necessarily expansion, but relocation, restructuring because of the global environment. We yes. talked about, well, potentially funds not being as freely available as they used to be, but funds may well be available within some of those countries that you want to expand into on a much yes. better basis. We've talked about sort of common places that companies in the US want to expand. We've also looked at Europe. And certainly that big one is always, and we had it for a long time as Grow CFO, where Dan and I started Grow CFO and we were, our ambition was to be a global organization. But because where our contacts were, the people we knew, all our LinkedIn contacts and so on, we could increase membership and increase interest in the UK. But it took a little while to get some traction in the US. But certainly we're common with, many, many European companies that we want to be bigger in the US than we are in the UK. And I can see that thing in the US of how attractive Canada and Mexico might be, just yes. as well you never built that wall across the Mexican border. <laughs> well, that depends on your politics, but I think we would have been better off if we had it. I will not go into that. Others, that others, like we don't want to go into that area. But one area that I just wanted to flag is uh, you know, we have an office in Beijing. There are a multitude of Chinese companies that are expanding into Europe. Yeah. They're not expanding into the United States that much, but they're expanding into Europe. And we often get inquiries from Chinese companies. Some of them are state-owned. Some of them are apparently not state-owned, but probably are state-owned at the back. The, none of them, those kind of companies, you have to be very careful what you take on as a client. But there's no doubt that there is a market there. Whether that market is a good market or not for a company like Nucleus remains to be seen. But we have a lot of inquiries from Chinese companies wanting to expand into Europe and also, funnily enough, into Southeast Asia, into Singapore, Japan, Vietnam. So that is a market that we should not forget about when we talk international. I know yeah. that the listeners or the attendees are primarily not from China, but we should be aware of but, that. But be aware. One of the things we talk about a lot in Grow CFO is understanding your market. And we talk about doing things like Porter's Five Forces. And we talk in there about, well, what's the threat from new entrants? Yeah. If you're yeah. identifying Chinese companies as looking to expand in Europe, that's something that I bet isn't on too many people's thoughts when they're putting together that kind of analysis of what might happen. Why do you think it is that they're more keen on Europe than the United States? Political reasons. They're worried that they could get banned from acquiring US companies or 
come under increased regulatory scrutiny because they want to expand to the United States. And by the way, India is in the same bucket as the United States. As far right. as Chinese capital go, they're careful about, there are not many expanding into India either. Ah, that's interesting. They know that the, a Chinese company applying to set up an Indian subsidiary comes up, not just increased scrutiny, there's specific government approval that's got to be obtained before a Chinese company can open an Indian subsidiary. Interesting. Yeah. The application isn't a standard application. It's non-standard. Yeah. And I suppose we've seen the likes of TikTok, Chinese-owned social media, getting much more opposition in the United States than it has in the UK and Europe. Who are the mobile phone oh, technology provider? Again, the yeah. United States, much more resistant mm-hmm. to, say, the UK having their technology and things. Yes. I think Chinese are wary of doing business in the United States for the first time. Established mm-hmm. companies is different, but for the first time, they think that the perception, rightly or wrongly, is that it's easier for them to do business in Europe than it is in the United States. So either they want to do business very close to home, like US to Mexico and Canada is equivalent to China to Japan or Vietnam, or they want to sell into a sophisticated market. They don't want to come into the US. So what other market is there? It's Europe. And I suppose the flip side of so much European and indeed US manufacturing having been moved to China is the amount of knowledge that has inadvertently been given to that economy to, well, firstly, copycat, secondly, to innovate and improve upon. So it makes China a very, very powerful player. Yes, but also a player that's subject to a lot of suspicion by target, therefore more difficult for them to get in and operate there. One of the big problems of operating in China is that IP protection is very poor, unlike India. India has a fast-track court process for getting an injunction on an IP matter. China does not. Right. And if it's a government-funded Chinese company that's stolen your IP, good luck. Yeah, you're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) On that sobering note, that has been absolutely fascinating. Sean, thank you for being this week's guest on the Gross CFO Show. My pleasure. And it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you as well.